You are listening to a Geek Network interview. Be sure to hit the follow button to get notified when a new episode is available. You can also visit us at geek-network.com for your guide to the geek entertainment news you love. Created for geeks, by geeks, and remember to always geek responsibly. Hello, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, this is Daniel with uh, Geek Network. Uh, we have another amazing guest. Uh, we have Jim Zub. Jim, um, if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you do? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Jim Zub. I'm a Canadian comic book writer. I've been working in comics in various forms for, oh my God, like 20 years. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think that it's been that long, um, but I'm probably best known for the material I've been doing over the past kind of decade. Uh, quite a bit of writing for Marvel. Um, I've done work for Dark Horse and IDW Dynamite, just about every major publisher in North America. I'm probably best known for things like uh, Thunderbolts, Avengers, Conan the Barbarian, Dungeons and Dragons, Samurai Jack, and my own creator on series, including Skull Kickers and Wayward. Awesome. Well, again, uh, it's such a great, you know, pleasure to have you on and really excited Thanks. to talk to you today. Um, yeah, I just really want to start this off. Um, coming up with this, this uh, most recent story for Thunderbolts, uh, did you decide to come up with a team or was this, you know, team kind of assigned to you by Marvel? Um, the new version of Thunderbolts, this is actually my second time writing Thunderbolts, which is kind of an unexpected honor. Uh, the first superhero in continuity stuff that I did for Marvel was a run on Thunderbolts back in 2016. And that was with pretty much the original lineup of the characters, the same uh, kind of villains trying to be heroes lineup that Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley utilized in the character's first appearance, which is now 25 years old, which is crazy. Um, and that was a ton of fun. We added Winter Soldier into the mix and he was trying to lead this team of of villains and some of them were trying to re, you know reform themselves and it was a it was a fun kind of adventure in the build up to um nick spencer's secret empire uh and then this kind of opportunity sort of poured out kind of organically i had been talking to marvel editor-in-chief cb sabolsky about potential project stuff and he was talking to me about um devil's reign so, you know, Zadarsky and Chichetto on um, Daredevil, they were doing this cool event that had spilled out with Kingpin and Daredevil and all this sort of stuff around New York City and um, Wilson Fisk um, outlawing superheroes in the city of New York. And so the idea was, well, you know, in the face of Luke Cage winning the mayoral race in New York City, but this old law still being on the book, outlawing heroes in the city, how do we, you know, sort of round the corner on that? What would Luke Cage do? And I'm like, well, if the Thunderbolts, which at the time of, of Devil's Reign, uh, Kingpin basically made the Thunderbolts the name, that team, his sort of personal enforcers. And he had a bunch of real villains on board causing trouble in New York City. So if that's on the book that these guys are deputized and they're the law, you know, the easiest path is to basically turn the the thunderbolts legit and so we knew we had to put together a heroic team of thunderbolts that luke cage was going to try and use at the core there and so um 
editor Tom Brevoort and I kind of bandied back and forth and brainstormed different characters who could be at the core of this team. Uh, and pretty early on, I wanted to use Hawkeye as a linchpin for it. Hawkeye was the second leader of the Thunderbolts after Baron Zemo in the original run. He's got a good handle on this kind of, you know, reformation sort of stuff. And I, I kind of envisioned Clint like, um, you know, wanting to get a team back together, any team, because he wants to sort of get back to that point in his life where he was leading the West Coast Avengers. And they were, you know, that was a really good time when he had felt like he had control of things. And he understood what his goals were and what it was to be a hero. And so I had this kind of midlife crisis envisionment for Hawkeye, but I didn't just want to give him his old buddies on the West Coast Avengers. That's what he wants, but we got to put barriers in his way. So then it was about finding heroes who were in New York City that weren't already attached to a team and that could make for an interesting kind of uh, lineup that could have different power sets that could showcase some different elements of of this team and end up creating kind of conflict between each other and eventually our big bad villain reveal that's still to come so uh spoilers <laughs> spoilers so the 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 long answer to your very simple question is uh it was a mix it was a mix of characters that i wanted to inject into the team and characters that uh tom brevoort and other people from editorial kind of brainstormed and we went back and forth to to put them together. There were several iterations that we went through and this was the configuration that we all kind of uh, settled on as a really fun one full of some curveballs and the ability to make some new characters, which, you know, just as a, as someone who grew up a Marvel fan, the ability to make a new character in the Marvel universe is always something kind of joyful and, and unexpected. And, you know, when you get your chance to do cool stuff like that, you don't, you don't take it for granted. Absolutely. Yeah. Any characters you had in mind that had to be scrapped for the specific storyline that you're kind of like a little bit heartbroken or like, but um, I understand. Yeah, I mean, there were different characters that I wanted in the mix, but I never talk about that stuff. I never talk about what could have been because it's, it's not really a fair comparison, right? Because mm -hmm. whenever writers talk about stories that never happened or pitches that never go forward, you're basically fighting against a fairy tale. If I tell you whatever character was supposed to be on the team, you can assume the best case scenario that it would have been the perfect story. And then we can all be heartbroken and go, oh, that would have been the greatest. Why did they take that away <laughs> from you? And that's just not reality. Like, you know, um, what's on the paper is what I'm really proud of. And what's printed is, is the story that, you know, I put my heart into. And that's what really matters. So many times I see people do this where they kind of, they're fighting against a fantasy version of their own work where they're basically like, if only I had been able to do X, everything would have been, you know, perfect. And it's like, that's not, that's just not going to happen. So you're always going to have those kinds of things. And that's part of the job. And I love the lineup that we've got. I love the dynamic that they have. Um, the stuff that's still coming out when we're recording this interview issue five is not out yet. And that's mm -hmm. our big kind of payoff. And there's a lot of big surprises and reveals in there. And uh, I'm really proud of it. And I, I think readers are going to have a great time. So that's, what's most important to me rather than kind of trying to dial it in and go, well, what if this character would have <laughs> been in there? It's like, nah, let's just get excited about the book that is there. So. Did you have any, uh, you know, difficulties or struggles writing certain characters for the specific story? Um, you know, I love team dynamics. It's a it's a weird thing because growing up, I read all sorts of solo characters. I always loved 
Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. And I read like the Avengers or Fantastic Four, but most of the books that I hunkered on as a reader were solo titles. And yet now as a writer, I love team dynamics. I love getting to write a variety of characters. I love getting to sort of move the spotlight onto particular characters and shift them around and, and try different configurations or putting them through the paces. Mm -hmm. um, Victor Alvarez, the new power man is kind of an interesting character because he's been around for a little while, but he hasn't always kind of, I think writers have struggled to kind of find a voice for him or find a role where he kind of fits. And I liked this idea that he is this scrappy character trying to prove himself he's been on a few different teams and it hasn't quite gelled and now he's getting a little bit desperate and like wants this to be the one wants this to work and so he's sort of over eager and jumping the gun and that was one it took me a bit to kind of wrap my head around as mm -hmm. a as a character um america chavez i had um was another one that i hadn't uh done a lot with and i'd seen on like young adventures that uh, Kieran Gillen had done and I really enjoyed it. And I thought this is a character who is kind of fascinating in a lot of ways. And I can sort of play with some of the dynamics that had come out of the recent miniseries with her. When they, um, I apologize, I can't remember the writer of the recent miniseries, Made in America. Uh, when they finished that series, essentially she's a little depowered and she's a little, she's kind of struggling with her current power set. And I thought we can play into that in what I want to do. And I think um kind of build on her concerns about whether or not she's going to be the powerhouse that everyone has seen her be in the past and so that was sort of a fun dynamic to kind of figure out uh purple girl uh, who's now called persuasion she's a really cool character because um you know the the purple man's got such a a deep kind of dark history and she's one of his kids and so that was another character where I was sort of like, well, how, if you're, if you literally have purple skin, you can't hide in public. And he's got such a terrible legacy and everyone kind of knows him as this horrific criminal. How's she going to stand out? How's she going to try and turn the corner on that reputation? And so I sort of took this tact with her where it's like, okay, she's embracing being a celebrity because if she can't hide who she is, she's going to have to put herself out there and be something better. And that was sort of a fun way of of kind of looking at her dynamic. And uh, yeah, it's just about figuring out what drives the character. And sometimes when you're brainstorming this stuff, it takes a little bit to get momentum and to figure out who you want them to be or what, what their contribution can be to the drama, what their contribution can be to the overarching kind of plot. And, and that's always a fun, but also frustrating process when it works it feels kind of magical as these characters are kind of interlocking on a team. And when it doesn't work, you're just like, what have I done? I've got all <laughs> these puzzle pieces and nothing fits, you know? So it's a fun, it's a fun uh, challenge as a writer. Nice. Now, if uh, we could flip the story on its side and go to a different universe, um, sure. going DC, like who would you pick as these uh, DC characters to play the characters that you've written for and that are, oh you know, the main God. characters in this. So you want me to do equivalent of DCs? I don't know that it's a simple analog. Like I know that there's some characters in the DC universe where there's a clear comparison. So whatever you say, like swamp thing versus man thing or like stuff like that. But I, I, I try not to slot characters into just simple buckets where you're just like, well, 
the cyborg characters like that other cyborg character you know like i don't feel like that's that does them any any justice you know the best thing mm-hmm. you can do is approach each character. like i don't just want to say well submariner and aquaman they're the same you're like well not <laughs> not really they shouldn't be if you're doing it right you should be looking at the history of those particular characters rather than just looking at surface traits or rather than just looking at power sets so um i grew up a marvel kid and i've read a bunch of dc stuff and i like you know the dc characters but i'm not as much of an aficionado where i know them inside out and so i don't feel as comfortable just sort of saying oh so and so goes here and and this person is that you know green arrow is hawkeye etc cetera, etc cetera. like i don't feel like that's yeah that's not cool to Clint or Ollie or any of those characters. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love to do more DC stuff. I've only done a handful of DC projects over the years. Um, but it's a fun, it's a fun challenge to step into any of these things, these bigger Marvel and DC universes, the superhero kind of creative sandboxes and try and find, um, especially characters who have got just whatever decades of stories underneath them. And you're trying yeah. to find an angle, try and do something that is simultaneously true to their core feels like it it builds on what's come before but isn't just repeating old plot points that's yeah. harder than people think sometimes i think readers they're like when 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 writers take a big swing on a character and they do something unexpected and the fan base shakes their fist and goes how dare you <laughs> you're like man at least they're trying something yeah you know, at least they're doing something different because you know do you really want to see like whatever spider-man punch out a, a purse snatcher like is that you know do you want to see batman like on the looming on another gargoyle, like as uh, stopping a bank robber, like uh, we can do better. Like, let's try and push the envelope and, and surprise people. Sometimes I read some of these books and I think as a fan, I grew up and I read this stuff and I, you know, I would be just like anyone else where I'd be like, how dare they, how dare they change things? How dare they adjust things? And now on the other side of it, I sort of go like, oh, thank God. Even if it doesn't work, at least they're trying something. At least they, yeah. haven't, they haven't exhausted all creative opportunity you know you know so i'm just taking uh, <laughs> your question and i'm just re-steering it in another direction here. no you're good because i could see you writing uh, a really good uh dick grayson story Thanks. also uh jason todd going into you know red hood yeah uh, i like i like morally ambiguous characters or i like characters that are struggling against the odds um i you know i i write more of those characters than the paragons of perfection don't get me wrong every so often there's something weirdly cathartic about writing dialogue for steve rogers where he's the best of us and he's like saying the true things that we all want to believe but uh but i think in my heart i'm a little a little a little more gray a little more you know struggle a little <laughs> more against the odds so yeah yeah and also um you know uh you did uh rick and morty D. Uh, mm-hmm. I've done a couple of uh, other D and D experiences yes. uh, for the books. And... Yeah, I've been writing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the official D and D comics, since 2014, since the launch of fifth uh, edition Dungeons and Dragons. So that has been a really amazing and unique pleasure. Um, Dungeons and Dragons. I, I genuinely wouldn't be a writer today without D and D. When I was a kid, it was huge. really yeah, it was a huge uh, creative influence on me because it has this improvisational quality where you're interacting with other people. At first it was just my older brother, but eventually our kind of wider friend group and some of my cousins and things like that. And um, have you played Dungeons and Dragons? Oh yeah. 
I'm, okay. I have a campaign going right now. I can't always assume. <laughs> you know, I, it's great. Yeah. But what's wonderful about it is that interactive quality and the ability that on your turn, uh, whether it's as a dungeon master or as a player, you get to be part of the story. You get to engage with it. You get to add your creativity into the mix. And if you entertain other people and if you engage with them, it's a, it's a ton of fun, you know, like the laughter that comes, the real pure laughter of the surprises of both what people are doing and also whether or not the die rolls are going to go along with your glorious plans. <laughs> um, and, and the interactivity of it is so fun and the spontaneity and the entertainment, the ability for you to create things, create worlds, create characters. It meant a lot to me and it really inspired yeah. me to want to tell stories and want to create things. And um, even now when I'm writing my stories, I'm doing it through a lens of role play, which is to say that I'm not trying to stop. How do I put this properly? I don't want to make it sound too dramatic. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm not just imposing my will on a character like Hawkeye. I'm trying to role play Clint Barton specifically. Do you know what I mean? I'm reading mm -hmm. the stories of Hawkeye and his history, and I'm trying to imagine who he is now and based on what he's done, what kind of a decision would he make? It's not about me trying to exert my voice on Clint Barton or be something he's not. It's about what is a, what is this character want and what do they want to do? And when I put him in conflict with whatever Monica Rambeau or, or all these other things, you know, he's struggling against his divorce with, you know, Bobby Morse or whatever, I'm trying to put it through that lens of, of like an RPG, like I'm putting encounters in front of these characters and difficulties and drama and their interactive, you know, their interactions with each other help yeah. drive the story. And so for me, it's all role play. It's all, I'm either the dungeon master and I'm setting up all the pieces and I'm the set pieces and, and the action, or I'm the players trying to, you know, fight my way through. It's uh, <laughs> kind of how I look at this stuff, honestly. And and then getting to write official D&D &D content. I've done both comics. I've done crossover stuff. I did, um, mm -hmm. you know, the Rick and Morty D&D. &D. We did two right. Uh I did the Stranger Things and D&D miniseries that I co-wrote with Jody Hauser and drawn by uh, the amazing Diego Galindo. Um, and I've done some consulting on the game books now. So I was in the, back in 20, oh God, 18? Back in those halcyon days, um, I was in the Wizards of the Coast office for a week and we worked on a book that eventually became Descent into Avernus, which was this mm -hmm. big, it is this big, amazing adventure. Um, I work on a series of books uh, with two co-writers, Stacey King and Andrew Wheeler. We do these books called the Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers Guides, and those are published by Random House and they're to bring new people into the hobby. And they're directly informed by my experiences learning to play D&D when I was eight years old. And so it's like, for me, it's like trying to channel all that excitement and creativity that I had at that age and put yeah. them into these little books and get kids excited about D&D. And so now we get, we literally get fan mail from around the world for these books. I get little, we get letters from kids in France and they tell me about their D&D characters I get letters from kids in, in, in Spanish and Portuguese and German and in like, it's crazy. It's crazy. D&D is bigger now than it's ever been. And uh, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's mind blowing, honestly, to be even a tiny part of it. Um, if you would have told whatever, eight, 10 year old me, someday you're going to work on Dungeons and Dragons. I just, 
I don't think my brain would have stayed inside my skull, you know? Yeah. yeah. So a couple of follow-up questions, but one sure. of the big I just barraged ones. you with, see, as <laughs> no. soon as you say the word D and D it's just like unload all my excitement because it's no, that's amazing. I absolutely love it. Um, again, uh, you mentioned Rick and Morty, you know, doing some mm. of that sub story and all the other stories for D and D, uh, in your experience, uh, what was the best, uh, D and D story that you, you know, wrote? Or, you know, were a participant of, like, you actually right. were a player. Oh, like games I've played? Um, yeah. I mean, the craziest, I mean, the craziest thing I've written in D&D, I mean, it's weird, right? Like, every story's got its own kind of advantages and disadvantages. Um, I'm really proud of Infernal Tides. Max Dunbar is one of my favorite artists to work with. And I feel like we were both humming on this really cool comic miniseries, which is a loose adaptation of the Descent into Averna story. So it was extra special to us to be involved in that book. And then to bring it to the comic page was really, really cool. And Max delivered some of the best, most beautiful artwork he's ever done. So that was a, a real unique and singular pleasure. Uh, in terms of gaming stories, the craziest session I've ever been in, you can actually watch on YouTube, which is kind of hilarious. So D&D does these events now a couple times a year online, and they they used to do them. I don't know if they'll go back to that format, but before the pandemic, they did um, these live events where they would do almost like, I guess you'd call it like the Apple keynote speech of of Dungeons and Dragons. Um they this gatherings of people where they present the new D setting and they talk about their plans for the publishing line and all sorts of things like that and then they do live games on stage oh did we lose our host uh no i don't think oh, so there you are you froze on the screen there for a second. <laughs> i wasn't sure if you were still there um and so the uh, they did one of these events in Los Angeles and my wife and I flew down and I got to play D&D on stage with sort of like a panel of nerd liberties. It was uh, <laughs> it was crazy. I got to play one of the characters that I've written in the comic series, this infamous kind of cult character for the Baldur's Gate video game named Minsk and Matt Mercer, who most people know <laughs> as the, the dungeon master for Critical Role. He played yep. <laughs> Minsk's hamster Boo. So he's like playing my hamster. Like it was the most insane session ever. Like Debran Wall <laughs> was on there. Chris Perkins was our dungeon master. B. Dave Walters. Like it was this just bizarre, amazing lineup of people. And for like three hours, we played D&D on stage. And just through sheer weird timing, it was my birthday that day. <laughs> and so we're playing D&D and we're streaming it out too. I'm not exaggerating. Over 100,000 people live over the internet. And I'm playing D&D with these people and making them laugh. And after it was all over, I got messages from friends of mine I hadn't talked to since high school. And they're like, I saw you on the D&D channel on Twitch. Like, what the hell's going on? Uh, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was a singular memorable experience. Yeah, it was, it was a ton of fun. It was the strangest, most delightful birthday party ever. So, yeah. And then... Um... <laughs> stepping a little bit away from D, &D sure. how do you feel take out the adventure uh, avengers so brutally out in murder world <laughs> i mean um i mean the avengers 
I don't spoilers uh, are not quite in the story the way that people expected they would be. Murder World's been such a joy to work on. Uh, Ray Fox and I uh, have been wanting to do that story for a long time, <laughs> and I am to this day shocked that Marvel's letting us get away with it because we're doing some crazy crap in that comic. You have no idea what's coming, um, and the idea of making the Avengers these. Uh, kind of murderers like hunting people down in the story was something I thought was hilarious but they would never let us do and lo and behold uh, now it really exists so uh, right up through the end of that story coming out I'm I I keep wondering if Marvel's going to pull the plug because it seems so crazy <laughs> but it's been I will cool. ask it's been... you yeah oh, go, go ahead. ahead go ahead no continue um when I say a long time I'm not even kidding uh so ray the reason why i'm co-writing that series with ray fox we've known each other for a long time i met ray when i was in university and we both wanted mm. to get into the comic book industry and i many years ago i was working for udon the art studio that's also a book publisher they were doing a bunch of projects at marvel and my boss at the studio, he knew uh, Joe Cusada because they were doing a bunch of stuff with him. Udon was doing all sorts of different art projects and merchandising art and things for Marvel. Um, and I mentioned I really wanted to be a writer. And Eric, my boss, was just like, well, if you have good ideas, you know, I'll pass them along to Joe, you know, Joe Cusada, the friggin' editor-in-chief of Marvel. And so uh, we, Ray and I, we both had aspirations to be writers we came up with this insane idea. We knew they weren't going to give these untested writers something, you know, they're not going to give me Spider-Man or, you know, my favorite characters. So we have to do something weird, you know, something off, off brand and strange. And so we had this idea for murder world and making it like a really violent, crazy comic, like that movie battle Royale or like the running man or something. And we pitched this to Joe and he basically wrote back very politely. He didn't even have to respond, but he wrote back and said, this is kind of cool. Who the hell are these people? Like that we have no credits. We have no credibility. We can't pull this off. Um, and the gist of it was go get some experience. And not that I intended it this way, but Ray and I both ended up going in years later, starting to do more comic writing. And then Ray's done a ton of stuff over at DC. He was one of the writers on Batman Eternal. He wrote Constantine for a bunch of years. He's written Ragman and a bunch of other cool stuff over at DC. I've been building up my credits at Marvel, Thunderbolts and Avengers and Iron Man and Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda and all these other books, Champions. Um, and so we had this idea and I never thought we would get a chance to repitch it, honestly. Um, but then the conversation with CB was going really well around Thunderbolts. And one of my ideas for this new Thunderbolt series was that it was kind of a bit, it was a bit Ted Lasso. It was like Clint Barton is the underdog trying to lead this group where he's not quite an appropriate leader. And it was the fastest way for me to explain the kind of hard on your sleeve feeling that I want the book to have. And I don't normally do that kind of thing where you do the Hollywood. It's like this meets that. But but it felt appropriate to say, this is a bit like Avengers by way of Ted Lasso. And CB really liked that. And we were chatting and he said, you know, this is one of the better pitches you've ever done. I really think it's sharp. If you got more like that, if you got some other cool things that feel like it's a little reflective of current pop culture, you know, let me know because I'd be interested to see what else you got. 
you know, you're thinking about. And then he just offhandedly commented. And he said, you know, if you're like holding on to a squid game or something. And I said, I've got a squid game. And he was like, are you serious? I said, I swear I actually have a squid game. Uh, Marvel's squid game is murder world. And he's like, sure on the surface, but what, what's actually driving the narrative? And I said, no, like I really have a pitch. Ray and I pitched this thing back in the day. And I think it's more relevant now than it's ever been. And so I took this, thank God I have good archives of my writing. I found this 18 year old pitch. So the, this pitch is old enough to vote. And um, <laughs> looked it back over, touched it up and sent it in. I didn't even tell Ray that I'd sent resent in this pitch and CB really liked it. And Jordan White really liked it. And, and then Sarah Brunstad, one of the editors in the X office, she championed it and said, you know, I'll, I'll back it. Let's do it. And so all of a sudden I got to call Ray up and say, Hey, by the way, we're writing murder world. You know, my buddy, we have never worked on a project together, but we've always wanted to, and now we're doing it. So yeah. Yeah. 18 years old, this uh, particular story idea we've had. Damn. Thank God we're better writers now because now we're the actually <laughs> people that can hopefully execute on the concept and pull it off. So the the reviews on the first issue are very kind. We were a little bit shocked. I thought for sure people were going to be mad that they got bamboozled because the the way that the solicit made the series sound versus how it actually plays out is very different, but in a good way. Uh, and a lot of fun and and people really enjoyed the swerves and the the unexpected twists of our first issue and i really hope that they enjoy uh how it all plays out and the issues we've got to come because it's um it's a cool ride and uh just the fact that we finally got to make this book that's like 18 years old i feel like is a win like obviously i yeah. want it to be whatever a critical darling and i want it to sell a hojillion copies but for me, it feels like the boy who lived, like it shouldn't even exist. And uh, there we are. So, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, you know, when you pitch uh, an idea like that, and we've had multiple, uh, let's say, Marvel characters uh, are yeah. willing to, you know, do that sort of thing. How come they don't like, all right, like that story, but let's make it, you know, a berserk Wolverine or right. a berserk Deadpool, you know, right. Like, well, there's always, um, yeah, there, you know, one of the things you want to do is you want to pitch to feel full and interesting enough that editorial can see your vision for it, but you mm -hmm. don't want to sort of close off all discussion. Like with the Thunderbolts thing, I had this idea of kind of Hawkeye leading this team and trying to do good and trying to get back to his roots. And then the team lineup, you know, evolved as we worked on it. And the same thing with Murder World in the sense of we had some really cool ideas and tent post ideas of where the story goes and why it matters. And then we want editorial to give us feedback and to tell us what they're excited about and to push us to, to exemplify those themes. You know, it's not just like singular vision where I come in the door and I say, it's going to be like this. And then all the Marvel people go, oh, and they let me do whatever I want. There's got to be an interactivity to it. There's got to be like compromises in a good way. We're all here with the same mission which is let's build a really cool story let's build a really entertaining and engaging you know final product and i would be foolish to not listen to their opinion on that you know what i mean mm -hmm. what they think is going to make the most engaging entertaining exciting version of that and if i really believe that something should go in a different direction part of my job is to communicate why that's the best choice 
Um, my editor, Tom Brevoort, who I've worked with for years at Marvel, he's got a really cool, succinct way of putting it. He says, our job is to uh, communicate and entertain. But the first people we're communicating with and entertaining are each other, like are our collaborators. If the artist doesn't know what they're supposed to be drawing or why, then I've made a mistake as a writer. If the editor doesn't know what the thrust of the story is or where we're going with it, then I've made a mistake as a writer. You know what I mean? Then they have full reason to push back and to want to get their hands around it, you know? And if I think the story should be going in a certain direction and they disagree, either I need to figure out, like listen to them and understand their point of view and go that direction, or I need to make my case and sell them on my original idea because I didn't convince them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the right choice, that it's the right dramatic push, that it's the right characterization, that it's the right big twist, crazy ending or whatever, you know, that's got to be part of my job. I can't just say, we'll do it that way because I said so. It's got to be because this is the the best version we can make. This is the coolest thing we can do, or this is the thing that's going to make it memorable and engaging and all that kind of stuff. And I think sometimes people from the outside, they look and they say, oh, they, they have these extreme views of what it's like to, to write whatever comics for Marvel or DC or one of these companies. And they're like, oh, you're just doing whatever the editor tells you. And it's like, no, that's not true. And they're like, oh, or people have the other idea of, oh, you get to do whatever you want. They're like, no, that's also not true. It's somewhere in the middle. And every project's a little bit different. If you're part of a big crossover and there's a bunch of other moving parts, you have to fit within the scope of that thing. And hopefully you can make your part as meaningful as possible. And then other times you get to be in the driver's seat and you go, I want to go this way. Here's the coolest way we can do it. And other people get in line behind you and you get to drive. And that's cool, but that's not always how it's going to work. You know, that's the, the advantage and the disadvantage of being working on a, a, you know, a title in a giant shared universe with all these, you know, literally 50, 60, 70 books coming out a month. Yeah. Like it's insane the amount of stuff that's coming out, just sheer amount of content. And you're just sort of riding, you know, alongside all of it. And so again, if you want to do something crazy, you've got to justify it within that sort of system. That's part of the job, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if I'm doing my job, then we get to play the the game the way I want to play, you know? And if not, then I got to convince them or do a better job at, uh, at, at, <laughs> at selling them on why this thing is the coolest thing ever. All right. And shit. No, that was a really good answer. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks. No worries. <laughs> um, so you've also, you know, illustrated, drawn a couple of things uh, for yeah. comics and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, how I started uh, as an artist uh, before yeah. I, yeah. I, my background's actually in animation and art, and I still teach uh, at a college here in Toronto. Uh, Seneca College is an art and business and like, it's like a kind of general college, but they have a pretty highly regarded art and animation program. And I've been teaching there for years. Um, and before that, I worked in production on animation as a background artist. I've done some storyboard work and a little bit of animation. And um having that art background has actually been really useful to me as a writer because comics are a visual medium. And so right. being able to, even if I don't, I would never like send an artist my drawing and say, draw it like this. 
but what I can do is make sure that in my mind, I'm visualizing a, a story that has big visual components rather than it being like me describing something that doesn't translate well to the page, you know, or if I, I'm describing something, I can describe it in a very visceral, you know, kind of visual way. Or when artists are sending roughs or cover sketches or designs, we can talk kind of the same language. And I feel like that's a really powerful thing to be able to work with great, you know, collaborators and to to get something at the end that we're both really pumped about. Hell yeah. So do you, you know, taking some of that, you know, right. what you told us, um, do you, you know, sort of write out the script and then just, again, just trying to point it out for everybody um, and then have the artist kind of like define it? Or do you kind of have like a rough draft of what you're trying to say when There's you are some, the artist? Yeah, I generally do full, I generally do full script for most projects. So I am writing it all out, dialogue and kind of panel directions in the sense of this is a six panel page. Here's the kind of thing. I try not to be hyper-specific about layout unless I feel like it has some symbolic um, purpose in the story. So what's amazing about comic book storytelling and sequential art is the size and the shape of the panel changes the way the reader reads it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like a bigger panel has a different effect mm -hmm. than a smaller panel or a series of small panels, right? And so one of the things I'll sometimes describe is I want to have a series of panels that are all the same size and shape. I don't care what size and shape they are, but they should all be the same because I want it to have this rhythmic, almost like staccato quality that we are seeing this down the page or across the page. And so the, the artist still has the creativity to, to lay it out in a way they see fit but the size matters because I want each of these panels to have equal emphasis. And that is part of the rhythm of this page or, you know, um, huge blowout, you know, full page panel. And then at the bottom, there's some sort of an inset reaction from a character of what they just saw. Like, I'm not telling you exactly how much page real estate to use, but I'm dictating some of those major kind of swings in terms of how the page might go. Um, you know, I try not to, like I said, send an actual sketch because that's not my place. If an mm -hmm. artist really wants that, and it happens every so often, they're like, you know, how do you see this going? I can do a quick little thumbnail or whatever, but I try not to, because I don't want to feel like I'm intruding on their visual storytelling. Now there's a few artists that they prefer um, plot style. So what that is, is kind of old school Marvel. When Stan Lee was starting off in the business, he was writing so many damn comics that he would not do full script. He would write just sort of like on this page, you know, the thing is punching the Hulk and he's knocking him through a building, you know, and then Jack Kirby or whoever would draw five panels or six panels or three panels or whatever. And then afterwards, Stan would come back in and he would dialogue the page based on how much real estate was left, whether or not there was room for sound effects or dialogue or whatever. Um, and that's a way that a lot of kind of older, the classic artists are used to working where they're defining most of the storytelling themselves. And then the writer's kind of coming in and adding text to it. Um, I don't do that too often, but I've done it a few times. I'm actually currently doing that on the upcoming Conan the Barbarian series. Ooh. So the artist on that series, Rob Delatore, he's like this amazing 
amazing artist from Spain. And he's got this classic, beautiful inked brushwork look. He's got that sweeping classic kind of pulp style, like a Frazetta or a Buscema. And I just want to get the hell out of his way. Like, I just want the guy to draw the most beautiful, crazy <laughs> barbarian shit possible. And so I will describe a page and just say, like, here's where this thing is going. Big, crazy combat. These, you know, Conan's cutting his way through an army worth of bastards or whatever. And then let this guy just go nuts, like draw the, you know, barbarian dream imagery and then I'll come in and I can add that sweeping narrative to it, or I can add a bit of dialogue where needed. But that book is a marquee for his visuals. And my job is to vaguely steer the roller coaster and then just yeah. let him go buck. And that's, it's a really unique opportunity for me. And it's a really interesting challenge. Um, our first chapter of Conan the Barbarian comes out for free comic book day. And that's the oh. first time I've worked with him. And so it was like, kind of defining our working methodology. Like I'm just giving him these big, broad visual beats and he comes back with rough sketches. And then we kind of back and forth a little bit, like, hey, leave me a little bit of room here for some narrative captions, or can we sort of push this element of it? Or, oh my God, that's a really cool idea. Let's lean into that. And then he does the beautiful final inks. And then I'm just like, I can't believe this guy's drawing my story. Holy crap. You know, um, <laughs> it's going to be a, a damn beautiful book. And then Jose Villarubia, the award-winning colorist is coloring the thing. So then I'm just going to, you know, mess it up with my words. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's gonna be a you story. write amazing things. It's great. I'm really proud of the book. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm playing it up a bit. Honestly, the, the Conan book is going to be really special and I can't wait for people to see it. It feels like, it feels like the the Conan books of my youth, like I read the you know classic Roy Thomas and John Buscema stuff, but like on overdrive because it's like ours and we get to really steer it in a really cool direction. So speaking uh, of Conan, the uh, Arnold movie, like how's that your thing? <laughs> I mean, so oh, I grew up like that. like every kid of the eighties. Uh, you know that movie was transcendent for me like i think there's so many crappy i don't know how many crappy 80s fantasy movies you've seen but there is a dearth of them man like if you would go to a video rental store in the mid to late 80s the shelves were just stocked with wicked looking <laughs> video covers that were trash movies like they were bad bad fantasy movies they were low budget they were terrible special effects they had like synthy weird keyboard you know music like they were awful awful crappy movies but the covers looked like you were going to get some epic and conan lived up to everything it looked badass on the poster and then you watch the movie and that soundtrack just punches through your speakers and you are on a friggin' ride man i love that movie um that being said all my praise i just heaped on that john milius <laughs> movie uh it is not an adaptation of real Conan stories. It's like a weird melange. They took a bunch of Robert E. Howard stuff and they just threw it in a blender. Um, the, the villain is not actually a Conan the Barbarian villain from the books. The plot does not happen in any of the books. Uh, Arnold is the perfect visual look of Conan, but let's be 100% honest, he's very simple in that film. And the actual Conan is much more, um, he's much more refined. Let's put it that way. You know, he becomes a king by his own hand. And so 
without trying to sound too cocky or whatever the real conan from robert e howard's original stories has never been seen in film or television they, everyone's always doing these pastiches of the thing but like the real real robert e howard character is is very different than what you see in that film that isn't to say the film's not wickedly entertaining because it is but like most of the things you remember from that movie like tell me a quote from conan the barbarian go for it what's a famous line from conan the barbarian you must know the film do you know the film am i putting you on the spot yeah <laughs> you don't know any quotes from that film oh damn like when someone says what's a famous quote from conan the barbarian it's like what is the riddle of steel or like you know uh what is best in life and then conan does this big long speech about you know whatever see, <laughs> see your enemies driven before you and all this kind of stuff none of those lines are from any conan novel those are all just made up by the screenwriter and director and yet they're now like iconic iconic to this film and yet they're not actually conan lines which is kind of awkward um, so it's weird because the more i've written conan the more i've kind of i wouldn't say i'm a scholar but i've like read it and like analyzed it and you realize how different a lot of the media kind of interpretations of the character have been versus the original source material. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So I got, <laughs> all right. I got a few more, uh, two more questions then I'm absolutely sure. done. No so uh, with the uh, uh, murder world, mm -hmm. if it were become a feature film, what, songs would you put in that movie or comic book to the accompany murder the world, comic the movie yeah murder world i think i actually think based on our format it would probably be better as a uh, wouldn't be a disney plus show because it's r-rated right at the hoo-ha um but as a tv show i think it would work better because then you could almost like a squid game you could sort of have every episode would shock the crap out of people chapter by chapter um good songs for murder world oh my god wow you've really put me on the spot on that one um and now i'm thinking about it probably i think it would be fun to sort of offset have like old school punk music kind of offset things like you think you're getting like circus tunes and happy colorful kind of cartoony stuff and then it breaks down into like punk riffs that'd be kind of fun any like particular like, bands black, from the 80s black punk? flag or no effects or um <laughs> You know, that will be I'm trying to think of other rancid or something. That would be fun. Get some old school punk in there and and kind of rip it up. I think that would be uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like we're doing something irreverent. The other thing we'd have to do, because we reference this in the actual comic, is um, we try and use these superhero theme songs. So like in the Avengers issue, at one point, Captain America is singing his theme song from the 1970s um, Captain America cartoon, which is like really dorky and amazing. <laughs> so it's like, it's such a terrible theme song. It's amazing. It's like when Captain America throws his mighty shield, like it's like this oh, really right. <laughs> it's such a dorky song. It's amazing. Uh, in the Spider-Man one, we riff on the classic 60s Spider-Man cartoon you know spider-man man spider-man Spider like, does whatever so, yeah so almost every issue we've got some sort of theme song joke in there so we would have to get the rights to use all those and then you could do whatever punk riffs on those or deconstructionist kind of instrumentals on those 
that'd be fun. Last question. What sure. inspires, you know, you into writing uh, the show, uh, the books and uh, any music? Sure. Um, influences in this. Yeah. I mean, my influences are very nerdy, very vast. Uh, you know, I grew up reading comics, watching cartoons, playing games, and um, the excitement that I felt grabbing hold of those books and and the adventures of those characters have just like kind of reverberated through me for years. And so whenever I'm trying to write a story, I'm trying to think like, what was it about those books that grabbed me? What was that feeling of, of mystery and, and, and exploration and the unknown? And how can I kind of bring that to the page to excite readers? How can I surprise them that when we hit that big cliffhanger or when we do that big reveal that they're going to get a big grin on their face the way that I did, you know, when I was a kid and audiences are so much more savvy. Now they've, they've have access to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, like infinite number of stories they've seen on TV and they've read in books. So it feels kind of harder to earn their respect because they, they, they've seen it all. And so trying to think and outthink them is a unique kind of pleasure that if I can do something to throw people off the trail that they can't see what's coming next. Um, that's a job well done at this point because everyone seems to know ahead of time, you know, they, they see the clues. Everyone wants to Sherlock their way to the, to yeah. the finish and <laughs> figure out what you're doing before you've done it. And yet you need to put those breadcrumbs in there. You need to sort of lay the groundwork. Otherwise the reveal has no, it doesn't have any meaning. If it just comes out of nowhere, you know, it has to, you have to build it. And so that's fun. It's a fun challenge. And um, yeah, you try and write the stories that you yourself would want to see as a reader. I think way too many times people try and make stories that they think are trendy or they think are whatever. Like they're not actually writing something they themselves would be entertained by. They're, they're writing for some mystical fictional audience that doesn't exist. And it's like, look, man, make yourself happy make yourself happy as a writer, entertain yourself, engage yourself. Like if I can finish a script and I come downstairs for dinner and I got a big smile on my face and I'm telling my wife, oh man, I just wrote <laughs> this crazy scene and this is going to be so much fun. I know I'm doing it right. And that doesn't mean yeah. that there's not stresses. Obviously the job has its frustrations just like any other job does. And some stuff you, you, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and it doesn't come out the way you want it to, or you're struggling against plot or you're struggling against deadlines and you can't quite fight the answer, but you got to finish it anyways. But the more, if I can deliver something that I am entertained by and engaged by more often than not, then I know I'm doing, I'm doing right by it. You know, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Cool. Just want to say thank you so much for your time. I really do thanks, appreciate it. You're fucking amazing to talk to. Oh, thanks, man. That's fun. I'm glad, I'm glad you're enjoying the books. I'm glad yeah. this stuff, you know, like I, I, so many times people get like really wigged out about fan stuff or about, you know, criticism that they're getting on the internet or all these sorts of things. And I, I've talked to other people about this and I say, the reason why people are freaking out about this stuff is because they love it so much. You know what I mean? Like people freak out about the Marvel characters and, and what are you doing? Or, you know, what are you changing? Because they have bonded with them. And it's a unique kind of opportunity for us to 
carry the torch on these characters whether it's mm -hmm. superheroes or whatever getting to write samurai jack or writing dungeons and dragons or or rick and morty or any of this stuff and it's like so don't get me wrong i want to be praised <laughs> i don't want <laughs> criticism but on the other hand when someone's critical i sort of look and i go well you know it's this is probably their absolute favorite thing and i'm kind of rocking the boat a little bit yeah and hopefully I... <laughs> they'll stick around long enough to see this story through to the end and realize I love this thing as much as they do. And you know what? Kind of do this stuff. Yeah. Like, you know what? I, I see, you know, some other people coming up with this and you mentioned Rick and Morty. I know mm -hmm. that has a big uh, cult following and it's not intense. that intense. <laughs> yeah. Intense fan following. Yeah. I don't want to be like, Hey, I just know Jim because of Rick and Morty, you know, I want to give right, you, right. The opportunity to talk about your other works as not oh, just sure. rick and morty you know i want to give yeah, you praise totally. for everything else and that's, that's where i gotta ask my questions to keep it personal to your other work yeah, because yeah. i want to give light to your other work i don't want to just keep you to one specific thing sure and i think that's what's fun about it too is you know getting to write whatever like dramatic books, getting to write, you know, fun, the creator owned books that I've made on my own or with my collaborators, like, you know, whether that's Stone Star that I did with Max Dunbar or Jabril Morissette and I made this horror book called Glitter Bomb or Steve Cummings and I make Wayward or Edwin Huang and I doing Skull Kickers. Those books are a unique pleasure for me because they wouldn't exist if we didn't make them. Like, don't get me wrong, yeah. I'm super proud to have worked on Rick and Morty stuff and worked on Avengers or whatever. But those books would exist without us, right? And yeah. People generally are fans of the characters more than they're. They might like my version of it, but they like reading Iron Man because it's Tony Stark or you know whatever, or they've seen the movies or stuff like that. And it's cool. I get a little bit of that shine when I'm working on that character. But those characters will outlast me. You know what I mean? But the yeah, stuff yeah. that I've been able to make, create our own books. And then if I'm at a convention and someone comes up and says, Skull Kickers is my favorite comic of all time. And I'm like, holy crap. Like that's you my that. <laughs> book. That's my creation. You know, like that thing wouldn't exist if we didn't make it. That yeah. is one of the coolest feelings you can possibly have as a creator. If you make something from scratch and then people say, that's the reason why I read books or that's the book I share with my friends or that's the thing I'm here to get autographed. And you're just like, holy crap, we made a thing. Look at this. You know, that's a cool, that's a very unique pleasure. And uh, yeah. Yeah. If, 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 you know, when you're a creator, that's all you can ask for is people to be yeah. pumped and excited about what you do. Absolutely. And honestly, uh, just knowing that you've done, you know, a few DC things here, lots of Marvel, you know, yeah. Rick and Morty, your independent work. I'm I'm a fan and I can't yes, wait to see more. So thank thanks you so much for being a part of this. And my yeah, pleasure. No idea. Well, that's that was cool, great. My pleasure. I'm glad. Uh, glad you've enjoyed the books. Lots of cool projects coming in 2023 and beyond. So keep your eyes out for it. Thank Hopefully you. Uh, Phoenix can, you know, get their head out of their ass and we can have you down here. It'd be know, great. Because... I haven't been to Arizona in years. It's been quite a while since I've been there for the show. So it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. I want to get stuff signed by you. Sweet, man. And thank physically you met, meet you here in Arizona. So again, thank you so much. I hope to see you soon and uh, be well. And again, thanks so much for your time.
Catalyst.io.